morning. Privilege to be here with you this morning. So today, we're taking a break from the Gospel of John, as Nick said, and we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel, and next week, Pastor Nick will pick back up in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, if you would, turn with, with me to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, and if, there, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles throughout the sanctuary, either in the chairs or underneath the chairs in front of you. Um, and I think there's even a couple on the back table, too. So 1 Samuel chapter 13. So while you're turning there, so Bree brought up a point, too. We have a lot of new faces. Uh, you know, a lot of times with, after we get done reading a scripture passage, the person reading the scripture will say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation response is, thanks be to God. Uh, the reason for this is just out of reverence for the word of the Lord and what he's given us. Um, so we'll do that at the end of this reading. Starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 15. So chapter 13. Saul lived for one year, and then he became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 men were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all that Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison, garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at in Michmash, to the east of Bethaven, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in the caves and in the holes in the rocks and in the tombs and the cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the, appointed, the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not commit, kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. 
they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into your word today, we pray that you speak to us in a special way. Help us to focus uh, on you during this time, to set aside distractions of all that's going on. May we focus on you and your word. Help me, a simple wretch of a man, has been saved by your grace to convey the message that you have laid on my heart today, Lord, in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you, Lord. For anyone who is struggling or doubting, Lord, may you make yourself known to them. Lord, help us to have patience uh, to sit and listen and commune with you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so a little background here. So Saul's the first king of Israel. And the prophet... He became king uh, in the prophet Samuel's latter years of his life. Israel demanded to be like the other nations, having a king to rule over them. This, of course, angered Samuel because he saw it for what it was. What it was was a rejection of God as being the one true king of Israel. Because if God is your king, why do you need a physical person to act as king? So before Saul was even elected as king, Samuel delivered as a prophet, delivered a very dismal prophecy regarding what the kings of Israel would do. In chapter 8, verse 10, we see, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to uh, to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow the ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, the vineyards and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So despite this clear warning from Samuel, the people of Israel still insisted on having a king. So they rejected what the good thing that God had and planned for them. And so through this, Saul was chosen to be king. So looking back at our text today, if, you have the, if you're reading out of the New International Version or New Living Translation or some of the others, verse 1 may look a lot different uh, for you than what I had read. If you're reading out of the ESV, you would see that you should have a footnote by the end of verse 1. The ESV translation reads, Saul lived for one year and then he became king when he reigned for two years over Israel. The King James Version would read, Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel. So very similar. But then you read the NIV. The NIV would read, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 42 years. So what's what gives? 
seems very different. So this is one of the many passages that biblical scholars have debated on. Uh, the original Hebrew text literally translates to Saul was a son of a year when he reigned. In two years, he reigned over Israel. So in most cases in the Bible, when they translate the Hebrew translation son of a year, it means that it's translated to one year old. This, of course, does not make any sense at all, as we know that Saul was older than one year, especially since, as we'll find out later, that Jonathan in our scripture passage today was his son. So kind of hard to have a son at one year old um, and also to be leading a, a, an army at one year old. I don't think this is the case. So this is where the Hebrew really does not have a good direct translation for the words that were, that were used into English. So translating into English is a rather difficult. Some scholars believe that a son of a year is referring to the time that Samuel designated him king. And so that would be year zero or his birth year. Then reading through the book of Samuel, they say that there was a period of time that transpired from when he was designated a king to when he was appointed or anointed, actually anointed as king. So going with this school of thought, then this passage would be saying that two years have been transpired from the time that he was designated as king and one year had transpired from the time that he was anointed as king. Other scholars would argue that by taking the Hebrew text as it stands, a son of a year may not, be, not point to Saul's actual age, but to the unusual circumstances whereby Saul became the one designated to be king. For Saul, this was not as his birth, as would usually be the case for like a, count, a crown prince, because when they are born and they're the crown prince, they're designated at birth to become king. He was around, say, 30 years old at this point in time. So, but only when Samuel anointed him, that is when he became crown prince, and so that was his birth year. And that would be in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. It is possible then that the year of which he was a son of was the time that the day when we might say that he became crown prince and the day that he began his reign at Gilgal in 1 Samuel eleven fifteen. On the terms so clearly spelled out in, in Samuel uh, 1 through Samuel 12, these scholars would then argue that the two years in Samuel 13, 1 tells us that Saul reigned over Israel for two years, strictly to the period between him becoming king and when he was rejected by God in chapter 15. So the account of, Samuel's, of Saul's reign, strictly speaking, according to these scholars, would be then just the three chapters of Samuel's 13, 14, and 15. After that, while he's sitting on the throne, he is not reigning because he is not seen by God as reigning. So that's two perspectives. Third perspective, some, some Greek manuscripts, later manuscripts, refer to Saul's age when he became, began to reign here and the duration of Saul's reign. Hence, this is where you get your translations like the NIV. And the NLT is also one that follows with this. So myself, I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not going to argue or claim to be one. I would say that from what I have studied, the, the two first arguments make the most sense to me. 
With that said, though, what is important here is that the theme in the heart of this passage is not changed by the contextual criticism that can happen about the lack of good translation from the Hebrew to the English. To fully understand uh, this next portion of Scripture, I found it helpful to have a map as we look to the location of where everything is happening. Jeff, can you help me with the first slide? So we're looking here at a map. Hopefully you can see okay. It didn't look too bad from the back. We're looking at a map here. This is what Israel looked like during the time of Saul, during his reign. And then we have it blown up here. If you can go to the next slide, please. So blown up here, looking at it. So this is where we're talking about in the scripture passage that Saul and he had 2,000 men in Michmash. And so Michmash is up here to the north, as pointed out. And then Jonathan, who's later identified in the next chapter, but not in this chapter, as Saul's son, has a thousand men in Gibeah. So can you go? Yep, perfect. So Gibeah. Now, Jonathan attacks the Philistines at Geba and wins. So Geba is just to the south of Michmash. The, the next slide, there we go, pointed out. So Jonathan does the attacking. So there's a, a few issues with this. First off, Jonathan was not the one that was anointed by God to take care of the Philistines and to put the Philistines back in their place. It was Saul. But yet it's Jonathan who does the attacking. Also, if you look at this, Gibeah, you had to travel a lot further to get to Geba than Michmash. It was right in their back doorstep. But yet Saul was idle. Now, the text isn't clear if Saul ordered Jonathan to make the attack or, or not, but it still was Saul's duty by command of God to take care of the Philistines. So then, in response, Saul does something that doesn't quite make a whole lot of sense. He blows the horn, which could either be a horn of attack or a horn of retreat, and he goes out to Gilgal. If you go to the next slide, you'll see... It's effectively a retreat. So he has a victory, and then he takes off and retreats. If you could see the topography on the map, though, too, you would see that Michmash, Giba, and Gibeah, they form a kind of a line, and there's a nice ravine that it would be difficult to pass, and you would have to pass through between Giba and Michmash to get through, giving you a very good tactical advantage. And so this, what is effectively a retreat, is not anything that's as ideal for a defensible. So he effectively flees in the opposite direction. In doing so, he shows fear. And the fear is reflected in the hearts of the people, as we see in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people, they were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. So they're hiding everywhere. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan. So you see here, they effectively just fleed the country. They took off to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So some went into hiding, others fled the country altogether. Those that went to Gilgal with Saul we're following him, but we're trembling. What a great example for us and how our character is reflected in those who follow us. 
by as a parent and quick to get angry or overreact every time they get hurt. And my kids will be quick to get angry oftentimes or overreact when they get hurt as well. You can have a similar influence with those you work with or are around on a regular basis. If you have patience with those around you, they will have patience with you typically. So let us turn our attention now to verse 8. Verse 8 reads, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. He waited seven days. So, what is this time that was appointed by Samuel? What is this referring to? For this, you have to look back to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 8. Here, Samuel is anointing Saul as king and giving Saul instruction on what to do next. And he says, Then go down to Gilgal before me, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Saul remembered this command. He seems to have forgotten the first one in that he had Jonathan do the attack for him. But the second one, when he feels like he's in trouble, he decides, oh, I need to go and actually do the second thing. He has a bit of an attitude of, well, I'm going to do it all under my own strength. I don't need God for this. I can do it. And then when things start to go awry and he's under pressure, oh, maybe I should consider following God's instruction. I'm glad we don't have this issue in America today. We don't have an issue of pride or anything like that where we think we can do it all on our own, and then when it all of a sudden it fails, oh, maybe I should go back to church and try that out again. And then when it gets going again again, we, we go back over and we're back on our own doing it again, and the cycle continues. This is the attitude that Saul has. Can you imagine for a moment if you're an Israelite in Saul's camp and reports are coming in, the Philistines are amassing by the thousands and because he has left Michmash, they're amassing by the thousands in Michmash. And then on top of that, your leader is clearly fearful and is not confident in what he is doing and they are outnumbering you first five to one, then 10 to one, 15 to one. And then every day you hear reports of more and more people are, are fleeing your camp, crossing the Jordan, getting out, of, getting out of Dodge. They have chariots and horsemen. Well, you don't even have swords. We'll read that. If you read them on to the next passage, you'll see that they, they have no ability to do iron work at this point in time. So the Israelites have lost that ability. The Philistines have taken that away. If they need their plowshares sharpened, they have to go to the Philistines. They have to hire that done. So they have no swords. And you're continually hearing all these reports. And so there's fear in the camp everywhere. And for Saul, time is precious. And so he waits. And so he waits, and each day the Philistine advantage grows, but Saul continues to wait. Seven days he was told to wait. I'm sure he was very anxiously awaiting as people inquire. Has anybody seen Samuel? Is Samuel here yet? Has he arrived? Is he coming? Have you heard reports? Seven days, because Samuel, this is what Samuel has said to do. Seven days can pass quickly, but I'm sure for Saul, those seven days 
passed by extremely slowly and excruciating. At, as the end of the seventh day approached, Saul began to lose faith, and he decided it was time to take action. So he lost his patience, he lost his faith. So many times we, we do that too. We, we know that we need to wait upon the Lord. We need to sit before the Lord and pray about this. But then it doesn't go the way we want it to, or it doesn't look the way we wanted it to. For Saul, he thought that, well, surely Samuel's going to show up on day two or day three. And then I know that his seven days, that's what he means. But as the seventh day is drawing to a near, he says, huh, God must, must not be keeping his promise. And he, he gets impatient. And so the same prideful self-reliance where he can't wait on the Lord and sit before the Lord and follow his instructions fully as was told that got Saul into this mess initially is going to get him out. Or so that's what Saul thinks. That's going to get him out of this mess. So Saul takes action. He offers a sacrifice. It's clear that he convinced himself that he did the right thing. How many times that when we go about and we go in our lives and we know that this is the wrong way, but boy, it looks so tempting, so desirable, and we keep telling ourselves little lies that it's okay, or everybody does it, or and eventually we convince ourselves that what we're doing is the right thing. Here, Saul has convinced himself that he's made the right choice. I mean, it's the end of the time with which Samuel said he would come. It's nearing the end of the seventh days, and we haven't heard any reports of Samuel. Almost all of his army has deserted him. What other option does Saul have but to disobey God's direct command and do things his own way? This never turns out well. As soon as the burnt offering was completed, Samuel shows up. The immediacy here with which Samuel shows up almost gives you the feeling that Samuel was there incognito, kind of hidden himself under a robe the whole time watching and waiting. Is Saul going to be patient before the Lord? Is Saul going to carry out the command that was given him? Or is he going to go his own way? Is Saul going to rely on the Lord? Is he going to be patient and wait or not? And verse 10 says that Saul went out to meet and greet him. If Saul had felt he had done something wrong, I doubt he would have gone out to meet Samuel. He would have probably hidden in his tent in shame. But he goes out to meet Samuel. The prophet, through God, spoke his commands to Saul. And how does Samuel respond? Samuel responds with, What have you done? This is similar to God's response in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, where God asks, where are you? He knows the answer. God knows the answer. I think Samuel knew the answer as well. Or God's response to Cain, after he murdered his brother Abel, where is your brother? This accusing question uh, is rhetorical, as Samuel likely can see exactly what Saul has done. The altar is probably still smoking from the sacrifice in the background. However, it gives Saul an opportunity to show his heart. Does Saul choose to humble himself before God and Samuel and repent of his actions? Or does Saul defend himself and further entrench himself in the sin 
the second half of verse 11, we see Saul's response. And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. First, Saul points out that he had to take action because the people were fleeing. He had to do something. But something he should have been done was be patient and follow the Lord's commands. Saul had must have forgotten the story about Gideon and the Midianites. He must have forgotten the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho or of Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea, amongst the many others, where God used his great power to win a huge victory when all odds were stacked against the Israelites. Then Saul takes it one step further and justifying his actions, he shifts the blame to Samuel for not being there on time. I was patient. I waited seven days. Now, I didn't wait seven full days, but I waited seven days. And you weren't there. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Although this is not necessarily true that he waited the full seven days because it, the passage gives the gives the belief, or at least leads one to believe, that the seventh day was still there. It was just the end of the seventh day. It was not too late. The Lord did come through like he had promised, but Saul could not be patient. Finally, he claims that he did not want to be disobedient. He Instead, he had to force himself. He had to force himself to make the sacrifice. I think this argument almost makes his sin even worse as he essentially admits that he knew what he was doing was wrong. But he continued to go ahead and do it anyways. For Saul's last argument here, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 come to mind. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth and there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fierce fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How many times in our own lives do we try to make an excuse for our own sin? How many times do we make an excuse, oh, it's just a white lie, or oh, it's, it's not going to hurt anybody, or oh, it's okay that I did this. Even though I know it's wrong, it's okay. And we, we convince ourselves and we lie to ourselves that the sin is okay. It is not okay, though. And we see this here, that Saul's response is nearly the opposite of King David's response. When the prophet Nathan calls out, calls King David out in his sin with regards to his affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, David does not make excuses. He simply responds with, I have sinned against the Lord. He makes no excuses for his action. He makes no reason for why he did what he did. He simply admitted the error of his way. Furthermore, David would go on to show with his subsequent actions that he had a repentant heart. As one would expect, Samuel, God's prophet, does not respond favorably towards Saul's excuses, towards Saul's sin and his unrepentant heart. Instead, 
Samuel says, you have done foolishly. Worth noting here, Samuel does not resort to name-calling of Saul. He does not call him a fool, but calls his choice of actions foolish. Psalm 14.1 reads, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Turning from God and towards sin is without question foolish. In 1908, the Times asked a number of authors to write on the topic, what is wrong with the world? I'm not sure how you would respond. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton responded with the shortest answer that was submitted. He simply wrote, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton did did not mean that he had committed every crime on earth, of course. His point is that what is wrong with the world is that we human beings are sinners. And it's no use pointing fingers at everyone else. Since I am a sinner, I am the problem. Finally, in verse 14, as Samuel continues his rebuke of Saul, He states that there are consequences for his sin, just as there are consequences for our sin. Verse 14 says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. As you read throughout the Old Testament, there is a king of Israel who is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And this would be, of course, in reference to David. So this is the first time that King David is referenced as a man after God's own heart. This is not to say that David was without sin. Like we stated in our example earlier, he sinned, and he sinned pretty big. First having an affair, and then committing murder. However, when David sinned, we see he had a repentant heart. For Saul, he made it clear that he viewed God as secondary in his life. That when things were not working out, then he would turn to God. And then when God gave him a command, he was unwilling to be patient and wait for God to follow through with his command. He felt that he had to take things into his own hands. He did not want to wait. When all other efforts failed, then Saul would try God. In doing so, Saul showed that he viewed God as just a ritualistic, superficial action. The sacrifice did not mean anything because Saul showed his heart. Like King Saul, it's tempting when we are in a situation that resulted us being under pressure to seek security by almost any other means than by waiting before the cross, by waiting on God, calling out to God patiently, waiting. When things aren't going our way. We need to be at all times seeking, seek first the kingdom of God. We need to be waiting patiently before the throne, waiting on him. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So the safest place to be is in a position of trust in the Lord whenever 
the circumstantial storms of life maybe raging around us, to be waiting, to be waiting on the Lord, seeking the Lord in all that we do. A big view of God brings peace of mind. Saul did not have a big view of God. For the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. Deuteronomy 33.12 The promise of the gospel is not a life free of problems and challenges. God's people are called to suffering, but we are called to be patiently waiting upon him. For some, the call of suffering is even to to the point of martyrdom. Despite all the hurts, though, they never suffer the ultimate harm if we wait upon the Lord. Eternal separation from God does not happen to those who wait upon the Lord. For the Lord stands behind his people, he strengthens them, and empowers their witness. Ultimately, the promise of the gospel is eternal life. As Paul testifies in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The suffering that believers undergo is never the punishment of a wrathful judge, but always discipline, guidance, or opportunity from the hand of a tender father, for Christ himself took our punishment in our place. How we respond to that discipline, how we respond to that guidance and opportunity is up to us. But we are called to wait and be patient, unlike Saul. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we, we thank you for sending your precious son to us, that he might become the perfect sacrifice. May this be something that we do not take lightly or for granted. Lord, you know the thoughts and hearts of everyone here. You know that we have sinned and we have fallen short of your glory. Your word tells us that all have fallen short of your glory. And we pray for forgiveness, Lord. We pray that you grant us peace, grant us the ability to be patient and wait before you, to wait when things are not going our way, to seek you in all that we do, to wait and be patient before you, Lord. We pray that we do not have a heart like Saul that views religion as ritualistic, that only when everything else has gone wrong do we turn to you, Lord. We pray that we do not act like this. Lord, we, may we not be like this, but may we seek you in all that we do, desiring fellowship and communion, with you in all things, and patiently waiting for your response, giving you time to work in our hearts and in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.